0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
2: I have my PhD in history, but I'm an expert in whooping it up. Woohoo!
3: white gloves, and dirty documents. That's how this historian gets down. I am
4: JMZ. I'm a doctor, and my prescription is more shade. Hello!
2: You're here with me, Casey. Not
3: a J-Mail, the millionaires. Max Spear,
2: We recorded with Mary Klawn in the spring of 2021, just before we went on our hiatus. Given the recent Supreme Court decision regarding Manuel Castro Huerta on June 29, 2022, we thought this would be a timely episode. The conservative opinion carried by the court, led by Justice Kavanaugh, declared that Indian country is part of the state, not separate from the state, and therefore, unless Congress says otherwise, a state has jurisdiction over all of its territory, including Indian territory. Conservatives Justice Gorsuch dissented with the liberal justices on the court, noting that since the case of Worcester v. Georgia in 1832, the courts have upheld the proposition that Native American tribes retain their sovereignty unless and until Congress ordains otherwise. Given these pressing political and legal developments, we felt that Mary Klon's episode will offer important context for understanding this long history of state and federal encroachment on Native sovereignty. The first half of this episode will focus on the history of the relationship between Native peoples and the United States and break down important terms like sovereignty, citizenship, and wardship. And in the second half of the show, after the Banco Party game break, Mary will apply this conversation to different examples of anti-Indigenous behaviors on the Real Housewives. Of note, if you haven't seen the article, The Native Scholar Who Wasn't, from the New York Times Magazine on May twenty-fifth, 2021, about scholar Andrea Smith. We reference it multiple times in the second half of the show, and it can be a useful compendium for further reading on the politics of claiming Native identity. So with that, let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Mary Klon. Thank you. I'm really excited. We are too. Um, To kick us off, would you like to share what your Real Housewives tagline would be?
1: Sure. So this
2: this tagline
1: has like a a story behind it. It's like a family story, but, um, it is, I don't just watch reality television. I analyze it. (laughs) It's cute. (laughs) And I, um, it comes from, so my sister did this, like, um, kind of like an interview of all of our family members and extended family members where she asked us a bunch of questions, like what's your favorite color and what do you want to be when you grow up? Like that kind of thing. Um, about I think it was like a decade ago, and one of the questions was, "Do you have any hobbies?" And I listed The Real Housewives as my hobby, and everyone like kind of laughed at me, and I was like, "Well, it's really a hobby because I actually analyze it."
2: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I like when so taglines like, have like a lot of personal significance, like that.
1: Yes, I firmly believe it, and it's still it's been a decade, and I still stick by that. So.
3: <laughs> That's great. You might have been one of our first Bravo-demics that we we didn't even know about to say, oh, I analyze reality TV. I mean, come on. We're in good family here. Um, Yeah. So tell us this, Mary. Um, Tell us about your academic journey and really everything that led up to this moment of you giving us this H on H exclusive interview. I feel like there should be some music to that. This H on H (laughs) exclusive interview. (laughs)
5: Yeah, Max will,
3: Max will give us some. Sorry, Max will Max will give us some music if I you know wait until he's actually um, not doing eighteen million things.
1: I am been envisioning Max
3: like a soundboard of sound. Effects. That's exactly what's going on. Yeah, but he was looking for something else when I pulled out my. Oh, I love that. It's a
4: mix now. I
3: love that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> so please tell us about your <laughs> academic journey
1: um yeah well i um when I was in college I was a psychology major actually i didn't didn't actually think of i would go into history until um I took two classes my senior year with a professor of mine who just was like absolutely my most favorite professor I've ever had and she taught women's history and i basically changed my entire future plans off of her courses um I was planning on being like wanting to be a clinical psychologist and like going into a psych PhD program and thinking about taking the psychology GRE and all the things and I ended up um not doing any of that and just doing applying for one um MA program in women's history which was at Sarah Lawrence College in New York and um I got in and went um and it was uh I mean, I think I, I, my friends, like, you know, the senior year of college, everybody sort of asked, like, what do you want to do after this? What are you going to be?
5: And I said, well, I want to be
3: Leslie Dunlap. Like my my professor's name. I think
5: I want to be her.
3: (laughs) I want to be Peggy Pasco. So twinsies, twinsies. Oh my gosh. I
1: also would want to be Peggy Pasco. Yes. Um, but yeah. So I, um, went to Sarah Lawrence, which is actually where Peggy Pasco went. (laughs)
5: Wow.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it's like a it's a historic place. And that's the first um, graduate program in women's history. Um, and it was started by Gerda Lerner. So it was like a really, um, like, it was a wonderful bubble of like, people who all wanted to study women's history. Nobody ever had to defend that as like a legitimate field of inquiry. Everybody just sort of got it. Um, I mean, we had a lot of arguments and stuff. And there was interesting debates. But it was always like. This is legitimate. What you want to do is cool. And everybody was so excited about it. Um, so I was in that bubble for two years and then graduated. And it was 2009, which was like the height of the Great Recession. Um, and I left uh, New York moved with, with my then fiance to Portland and wanted to like break into public history, <laughs> which was like pretty much impossible. I mean, it's really hard to get into public history as a career now but in in 2009 like there was basically there's no jobs at all i mean i was applying for like to work at j crew and to work as like an administrative assistant to some random postings on craigslist i was basically applying to whatever i could um and i ended up working at the oregon ballet theater um in the ticket office which was um not my favorite experience (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I got to see the ballet for free, but it was uh, like a customer service sort of job um, part time. And I did some public history work um, as an intern with a Japanese American Heritage Museum in Portland and the Portland Children's Museum. And then um, really thought about like what I wanted to do for my future and decided to go back to grad school. Um, maybe part of that was based on like financial Considerations and be like, well, I'll just wait out the recession <laughs> in grad school, and we all know who that turned out. <laughs> so, um, but I did end up applying for my PhD. Um, I did a year of Americorps in between that too, um, but then I ended up going to UCSD for my PhD, and um, uh, I stayed, uh, I've been in San Diego ever since then. So when I once I graduated um, with my PhD in U.S. history. I have been here adjuncting. Um, I teach at UCF San Diego and at San Diego Miramar College and Cuyamaca College, which are both community colleges here. And I teach um, women's history, Native American history, uh, the U.S. History Survey, digital history, uh, courses on citizenship. So um, lots of really cool courses and lots of ve- a very diverse student bases. I teach at so many institutions and um, different, you know, uh, community college to R1 sort of Different um, types of institutions, but yeah, my academic journey is still very much a journey in progress. I'm still adjuncting, and I don't have a permanent um, position. Um, so, if anybody out there listening would like to hire me, I am <laughs> I am available. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, I think that the fact that you've had, you know, I mean, your journey looks like so many other journeys in that we have to do a million different jobs before uh-huh. we get to what we think is that pinnacle, right, of a permanent right. tenure track. But yeah. I also think, well, I'm not going to get on my whole tangent about the academy. I think your CV sounds great. Shout out to AmeriCorps. Um, yeah. I also was a AmeriCorps member. Um, I also worked for the ballet when I was in Utah. So it's like, are we no, kindred what? spirits and we're just meeting? <laughs> <I think so. laughs> um, but Did you work in the. Ticket office. Uh, I didn't. I actually sold subscription tickets, yearly subscription oh. tickets. So I was in the basement, but um,
1: that's a whole other level. We had those folks as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. A whole yep. other level. So, but anyway, thank you for sharing your academic um journey. I think the the fact that you can do public history and and you know the classroom history so well and so seamlessly is, is great.
2: I was actually wondering if you could share with us your trip from Oregon to California and how that shaped yeah. the project you ultimately ended up doing. Cause I feel like this yeah. is, this is kind of like one of those origin story things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I had, um I had done my master's thesis, my master's research on tourism in post-apartheid South Africa. And I um, was, basically kind of processing my own experience as a tourist in South Africa through my research. And I've decided for my PhD, I really wanted to stick with tourism, but I wanted to focus on the U S and I wanted to address the same themes of colonialism and, and racism and, um, the role of the state. So I decided I, I wanted to focus on native people and I didn't really have a very, a big background in native history before I entered the PhD program. But, um, my husband and I drove from Portland to San Diego and we stopped at Yel- uh, Yosemite national park. And there was this whole exhibit at the museum about this event that um, they used to put on in the early 20th century called the Indian field days. And it was basically like they invited all the native people who lived. there were some native people who lived in the park. That, um, and then there were some that lived in the surrounding areas and they would pay them basically come dressed in very kind of, like, picture Kenya Moore and Monique Samuels, like that kind of outfit, um, Plains Indian outfit, even though it was very not, not that wasn't the region that somebody is in, um, to dress in that kind of wear, to sell their um, baskets and other um, crafts that they would make, and to just perform basically for the tourists. And they would get paid to do this. And so I was like, well, this is my project. I have to um, investigate this. And I ended up focusing on that event and that. Um, that time period of the interaction between the state government which is very much all about assimilation policy in this era the early 20th century and then the contrast between wanting native people to sort of perform an idea of indianness for money for other people (laughs) um so i worked on that project for a couple years and that kind of morphed into my my book project which is much more about um the relationship between the state and native folks and the tourism stuff kind of went by the wayside, but now it's more about that state relationship. But that, um, yeah, that's kind of my origin story with how I came to my project was I saw the exhibit at Yosemite and um, decided that I needed to learn all I could about that.
2: Yeah. So as we kind of dig in to the work that you do, I thought it would be good to kind of define, explain some terms that are going to come up a lot. Um, sure. Uh, yeah. So that we, so that everyone listening is approaching with the same understanding. And I, I was hoping that you could explain to us the relationship um, between wardship in the state versus citizenship in the state. So how is wardship and citizenship different?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, well, they're both, the way I approach it, they're both reciprocal relationships between the state and people, right? So they're both involved Um, duties and sort of obligations that people perform and then the state in return has things that they're supposed to provide for the people but they are um, different in the way that they are perceived and kind of defined so citizenship we know citizenship is a complicated term but we kind of have a working definition of what that means of like the, the protections that the state is supposed to grant citizens and we have you know the constitution and all of these set sort of things that are set um, although there are things that have, you know, tons of different interpretations and debates associated with them, too. wardship is extremely vague. Um, it's a legal sort of term, but it's, it, when it comes to Native people, because it's not just one that's applied to Native people, um, which I can talk about in a second, but when it comes to Native people, it's extremely vague. So it comes from a Supreme Court case in the 19th century, Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, which is 1831, so right around... Um, It's a response from the Cherokee Nation to all of the laws that Georgia state legislature was passing to infringe upon their sovereignty, basically trying to induce them to remove themselves from the state. And they brought this case to the court um, arguing that Georgia had no jurisdiction in their territory and that based on their treaties that they had signed with the U.S. that they should be treated um, as a sovereign nation. And Chief Justice John Marshall came back with this extremely infuriatingly vague <laughs> definition of what Native Nations are. He called them domestic dependent nations, and their situation was like, resembled that of a ward to a guardian, um, as if they were in a state of pupillage. So the notion is that the U.S. then is the guardian of the Native Nations who are domestic dependent nations. But he doesn't define anything in that. So basically, that that race has become part of the root of Indian law and continues to cause all sorts of um, confusion even today. Um, but basically, it's a it's an idea about the, the U.S. government at, at its best. At its best, it's the idea about the U.S. government providing some sense of protection to Native land, holding Native land in trust, making sure that, um, that they are providing guardianship of Native resources and funds so that they don't get stolen, we know from history (laughs) that they don't do a good job with that. Like, that's basically a fact. (laughs) Um, And then it's also sort of used at its worst as a way to teach Native people, and I'm using that term very sort of loosely, teach them, coerce them, surveil them in terms of um, wanting to assimilate Native folks to to fit some sort of idea of what it meant to be a quote-unquote civilized member of the American citizenry. So there is some sort of sense in the beginning of the twentieth century, at least, that wardship would eventually lead to citizenship, but they were not compatible with each other. Like they couldn't, you couldn't be both a ward and a citizen. Like you would be trained in this manner, and then you would become a citizen after nineteen twenty four, which is when all native people in the U.S. sort of unilaterally obtain or um, are imposed upon uh, U.S. citizenship. Then there is this middle ground that emerges where people are still boards and citizens and that's where it starts to get really messy and complicated and confusing as people try to tease out what it actually means for native people's relationship with the state to have these two sort of mutually exclusive relationships um and that's what my book is about <laughs> that kind of a messy relationship between the two
4: two entities so you write about welfare dependency. How similar to or different from is this concept in your work from other commentaries about the welfare state uh, since the New Deal?
1: Yeah, um, I don't think I'm I'm straying too far with my definition of welfare dependency from the way that other folks have engaged with that idea. The, the new thing that I'm bringing to the table, I guess, is I am discussing the um, connection between the way legislators and state agents, so people working for like the BIA, the Bureau of Unit Affairs, or um, the Veterans Administration, or like the the Social Security Board, how they are uh, understanding welfare dependency as it relates to Native people. And there's been some interesting sources I've uncovered from, especially from conservative folks who were, um, nervous about the expansion of the welfare state and how many more Americans were accessing federal welfare benefits as, you know, as a result of the new deal and world war two and use native people as sort of this like vector of what could go wrong. If everybody kept receiving benefits from the state. So there's this idea that if we don't stop this, everyone's going to end up on reservations like Indians. So that, the idea is that wardship as they defined, it was like, the worst example of welfare dependency that we could have, (laughs) something to uh, steer away from, which has a lot of problems when it comes to Native folks, because if you're equating wardship, which is supposed to be this legal relationship between two sovereign entities, with welfare dependency, you're completely misconstruing what wardship is and what Native people's relationship with the United States is. And then it also ends up um, undermining their access to needed welfare benefits, because they are citizens and um, ha- should have access to them too. So there's a so introducing native people to the story adds a lot of different uh, multi-layered definitions of welfare dependency and um, how it intersects with this misconception of wardship um, overall.
3: Great. Um, so I want to put one more term out there, and just so you can explain it to our audience, um, we haven't really talked about just sovereignty and the the kind of play on that word and the way in which it does and does not work um, for, for um, native peoples. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then I'm going to follow up with a, with a, a, another conversation about welfare. Okay.
1: Yeah. So sovereignty is, it's, um it's a really like complicated term, mm-hmm. but also so simple if you sort of like tease out the definition, um, sovereignty We think about it as the power a a nation holds to govern itself, to set its boundaries and have those boundaries be respected by other nations, and then also to determine its membership and what one has to do to become a citizen or a member of that um, sovereign nation. So you can also talk about cultural sovereignty and sort of having control and autonomy over um, the way that your culture and language and religions are expressed and practiced. So sovereignty is like basically the thing. If you're talking about right, this is <laughs> <laughs> or again, yourself around sovereignty because native um, the history of native relationship with the U.S. government is a history of the U.S. government. Um, infringing upon Native sovereignty um, and then Native people pushing back against that. And there's um, there's definitely a interchange between infringement and control uh, and sort of trying to exert control and um, theft and coercion on the part of the U.S. state and then also how Native nations have um, worked their way around this. So one example to bring up the 1830s again <laughs> you know, I talked about Cherokee Nation versus Georgia which is this Court case that results in this um, the notion of wardship and the domestic dependent nations. The next year, there's another Supreme Court case, um, Worcester versus Georgia, which basically affirms that the Cherokee Nation is a sovereign entity and that Georgia doesn't have the right to in, um, impose their own, you know, criminal jurisdiction in Cherokee territory. So there's like from the very beginning of our understanding of law and um, uh, Native nations, you have this like both of these things at once the U S simultaneously undermines sovereignty and then affirms it at the same time. <laughs> so you have this real um, like set of a uh, very confusing um, standards that are interpreted various ways by people throughout uh, the 19th and the 20th and the 21st century.
2: Can I ask how sovereignty for native peoples uh, were treated in the constitution?
1: Oh yeah. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, so the Constitution uh, deals with Native people in two places: the Commerce Clause, and then uh, which um, says that the you know the U.S. is is it Commerce Clause? Now I'm like second guessing myself. You might have to edit that out if I sound. <laughs> um, the but, but anyway, it basically says that the U.S. will um, make. Uh, agreements or regulate uh, commerce and trade between foreign nations, the states and the Indian tribes. So they're like kind of specified as like a distinct entity from foreign nations and from the states. So there is a weird sort of middle ground that emerges in the constitution.
2: I actually looked up the commerce clause and you actually said it almost word for word. So. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I'm just so impressed that it was like almost verbatim. (laughs) So if you haven't figured
3: it out yet, Mary, we are totally going to use this episode every time we teach a 19th century class. And probably 20th century termination and 20th century. Yeah, we're not there yet. We're not there yet.
2: Okay, so <laughs> I, I have... A- oh, yeah, so that was the Commerce Clause was the first instance in the Constitution. It was the second? second? The um,
1: the other uh, instance is where they're specified as it's part of the um, determining representation in government. Mm-hmm. So the same clause where you have the infamous three-fifths Compromise, sort of encoded into law, you also have the line that Indians not taxed, that phrase not taxed becomes really important in the discussion about welfare later, but that Indians not taxed are not included for the purposes of counting the population to determine representation. So you have them really situated at the, at once, like outside of the U.S., so they're clearly not incorporated in the U.S. polity at all. So that mm-hmm. would sort of be like the idea that they are sort of their own own entities, sovereign entities. But at the same time, they are this kind of middle ground between a foreign nation and the rest of the U.S. They're kind of this, like, you will, you wouldn't send, so this, you can see it in the way that they make treaties and agreements with Native nations from the very beginning. So, like, you send an official delegation to France to make a treaty and you send just an Indian commissioner to make mm-hmm. the treaty with uh, the Cherokee. So there's a, there's a different level of state government that are in, um, interacting with native tribes, there's a real sense that they aren't they aren't legitimate sovereign. Mm-hmm.
3: That's that's exactly yeah. what that's exactly what I wanted you to un- um, decode for us. So thank you. So the uh-huh. second part of my question is going to have a lead-in from the great late great Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. and <laughs> I mean you've got all my my like nerd neurons fired up now. Um, <laughs> So Toni Morrison um, said in one of her in one of her works, I feel like it was paradise, but I could be wrong. Well, she says all paradises, all utopias are designed by people who is is are designed by who is not there, by the people who are not allowed in. So considering sovereignty, considering how we're talking about uh, wardship and welfare dependency, I want to think a little bit about how do these issues of wardship, welfare and welfare dependency Come together in termination policies we see in the 1950s and 1960s.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting quote. I actually really like that as a lead into this question because termination. So I'll define what termination policies were because they are um, they're really kind of pitched as a very positive thing from the people who supported them. So um, uh, maybe, that just made
5: my stomach turn.
1: Uh. Yeah. Oh, even those name, like when I say termination, all my students are like, Why would they name it that? <laughs> like, I, I, you got me, <laughs> that's not a good look. <laughs> but the way that they were talking about it was that wardship was holding native people down, that this oppressive sort of hand of the federal government was impeding native people's ability to be their own citizens, like, their own, like, could manage their property the way they wanted to, and to. It was basically, quote unquote, segregating them on reservations. Like they very much co-opted rhetoric from the civil rights movement in order to argue in favor of abolishing the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, discontinuing the trust relationship between tribes and the U.S. state, like basically undoing all of the very tenuous kind of protections that Native nations had um, that were, you know, interpreted in various ways they they weren't always perfect but they wanted to undo all of that and say well now you're set free you're emancipated <laughs> that term is used a lot this emancipation of native people from the yoke of the federal government this will be good for them ultimately so <laughs> what it was was they um they used this kind of list that was developed by uh, a member of the bureau of indian affairs william zimmerman um, kind of, as the story goes, it was kind of inadvertently he didn't really know what he was doing when he made this list he didn't know the intended effects of this but the list was like, here are all the tribes here are the ones that are ready for termination they are financially self-sufficient ready to go, you can release them from wardship and that's kind of the language they use like releasing or freeing or emancipating them um, and they'll be fine and then here are the people that maybe need a few more years and then here are the folks that are nowhere near ready so they're already sort of classifying them on their trajectory of like are they going to be able to become "quote unquote" full citizens? And part of the um, the rationale for this was like thinking about their financial security in the future and whether or not they would become potentially drains on the welfare state if they were released from wardship. Because kind of um, these legislators were equating wardship and welfare, the idea that the federal government is basically taking care of them. I do not agree with this. Um, definition at all. (laughs) I will explain that later. But the idea was that they are so dependent now. um, What happens if we make them independent? Um, And what happened was it was absolutely devastating uh, because they, they, all of the trust restrictions were lifted, which basically meant that land was able to pass out of native hands uh, much more easily. Um, The example that is really clear is the Menominee tribe in Wisconsin, which was the first tribe to be terminated. They had this really successful lumber um, mill and um, industry. They had, they had a lot of uh, resources. Once they were terminated, they became a county of Wisconsin that was like automatically the poorest county. And they had to pay all of these taxes um, on their land that they hadn't paid before. A lot of people lost their land because they had to sell it in order to pay the taxes. It was just a mess. And it beat, really undid um, a lot of the financial security that they had. So basically you went from like, a very financially successful tribe to the poorest county in the state. Um, and that's really the, the, it's the connection between welfare. Because welfare is really used as like, well, can we prove that they won't ever use welfare resources? That is the marker of whether or not they can be like a full participant in the citizenry. And there was a lot of, um, un, you know, people were unsure about this because Native people had supposedly always been, you know, the recipients of these quote unquote benefits from the state which are classified in termination legislation that um, passes in 1953 as gratuitous benefits, like things that are extra, they don't need. It's a lot of the same language we hear about people who receive welfare benefits, that they're mooching off the government, that they're sort of committing some sort of lie or fraud to get more money. Um, it's the same kind of language that's applied to Native people and their, and wardship, um, as as people understood it, as the terminationists understood it.
2: So... One of the questions that this is sparking for me is how is this termination policy trajectory in the 1950s and 60s uh, different um, than, uh, say, the goals of the Dawes Act from 1887?
1: Yes, that's a really good question. (laughs) I do not think it's that different. Honestly, it's, um, it's, it's very, they use very similar language. So the Dawes Act is also referred to as an emancipation proclamation for native people. It's kind of like they recycle a lot of the same, um, sentiments, the word competency, which is thrown around a lot in terms of the Dawes commission, um, determining who was quote unquote competent enough to receive their own individual allotment plot of land. That word competency comes up again in the termination era um, in this set of bills that don't ever get passed, but are like precursors to the termination policy that does get passed. And the idea is that we would find or the U.S. government in this uh, set of rules and regulations, bureaucratic process would find the Native people who were competent enough to be released from wardship and then release them individually. A lot of the um, ideas of allotment. I think the the main difference is the way that it's sort of sold to people is very different because they really do capitalize on the language and understanding of civil rights. Um, it's very much about, like, we want to free people. Like, we want to have everybody be equal. <laughs> this is the way to do that. And the whole idea that reservations are segregated spaces, that they are held there, it's not that we have to put, like, people of their savageness, which is what you sort of get in the Dawes Act language. It's it's more about like we've kept them down, and this is now our chance to make things right. Um, and it's a, uh, I mean, it's all. I argue that it's all a lie. Like it's all about land, right? <laughs> Basically, all of these policies are about freeing up native land for non-native people to to buy, um, and that's what happens with termination as well. So. Um, and with the Dawes that.
2: Act in particular, right, like an individual yeah. um, member of a of a tribe could decide that they were going to go in for the Dawes Act, try to make the improvements on their land within the, what was it, seven years that they were granted, right? But then mm-hmm. that, their parcel of land would then um, no longer uh, remain under um, the tribal sovereignty, correct? Yeah, exactly. And then, and so, then so, they're, so it would essentially create like this Swiss cheese look in uh-huh. in a reservation
1: yeah so they um so each so what they did was literally like if you envision a, a big piece of land <laughs> they like put a grid on top so there were these square plots 640 acre squares that everybody was sort of assigned um and then the whole process of how they assigned land is also extremely complicated and interesting and has like lots of enduring effects today because they basically had people come in front of this commission and interviewed them and tried to determine which nuclear families like should have each piece of land, which re sort of rearranged how people actually live their lives. Like the nuclear family unit is not something that's something that was applied to people rather than something that was actually practiced. Um, So it did undermine a lot of like existing important relationships with relationships between grandparents and um, adult siblings and all this stuff was really messed up with the Dawes efforts to sort of catalog people and then so they divided up all the land everybody gets their plot and then the idea was well all the leftover stuff is surplus and that stuff can be sold to non-native people and it is so it's about two-thirds of the land that ends up getting sold to non-natives and then you get up these checkerboards so you have all of these squares that are um native owned and then you have the squares that are non-native owned so you have people that have land within the confines of a reservation that who are not Native, who are now sort of in the middle of a reservation where all the other people are moving around them. So it's a, yeah, it's a whole mess. It's like literally a mess. Yeah, if it's it was, a constant
2: um, attempt to undermine the sovereignty of uh-huh. the Native yeah. nations.
1: Yeah, and the idea was that you would be turned into a citizen if you successfully improved your plot of land. I think they gave it like 25 years of um, still protected in the trust status. And after that, you could become a citizen. Um, so the idea is that you're eight, like basically working your way out of the tribe, um, as in every way. Like your connection to your family is different, the way you connect to the land is different. Your sort of understanding of yourself as a tribal citizen becomes different. It's all it's all very sort of um
2: and and in a post you know reconstruction, um, all the new sorts of rights of citizenship that are out there. Right, this would seem like a potentially good deal for individuals or yeah or no. kinda,
1: um well so with the i mean the 14th amendment there are debates about whether that even applies to native people um it's like kind of because the thing about wardship <laughs> the thing about wardship <laughs> let me tell you is that uh, with despite all of the, this rhetoric about like all you have to do is work the land and improve it and make this like Prove your citizenship. Nobody ever wardship never goes away. Like that sort of label never leaves a native person. Um, and native people, like they could obtain citizenship, but their wardship status doesn't doesn't leave them either. And that happens with the citizenship act too. There's the line in the citizenship act that basically says that this act won't interfere with your ties to the tribe or your taken tribal property or whatever. So basically, you have this dual relationship that sticks around and i mean maybe some individuals benefited in terms of like increased protection but then also like we're talking about not um, you know non-white people the late 19th century living um, in and among native non-native folks who really wanted their land i don't think it i don't i don't think we can give them that much credit Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) non native people
2: in fact let's not in fact let's not Yeah. <laughs> okay. So if we were to fast forward then back into the 20th century, what do we need to mm-hmm. know about the relationship between the rise of Pan-Native organizing and termination policy?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where, so my, I've talked a lot about how terminationists and non-Native folks define worship, but a big piece of my project is Native people's definition of fortune <laughs> this is very different. Um so I look specifically in terms of pan-native organizing. I look at the National Congress of American Indians um and then other groups that were sort of regionally pan-native um to so the All Pueblo Council and the um the inter- tri- Intertribal Tribal Organizations in Arizona where these groups came Uh, together to act as kind of like lobbying organizations for the government to stick up for um, Native rights and respecting land rights, and they mobilized against termination policy uh, specifically. So there is a real push for people to, from Native people, to get folks to understand that when this rhetoric comes out about emancipation and bestowing first-class citizenship, that that's all kind of empty words because Native people are already citizens like there doesn't need to be, it's just unnecessary to say now we're emancipating you to make you citizens, like the idea is that there's, there are no classes of citizenship, like they are citizens, <laughs> so <laughs> these things are unnecessary and basically a ploy to get um, Native land to passed out of trust protection um, so that's, uh, that comes about, N- NCAI, the National Congress of American Indians, is founded in 1944, and um, Termination legislation has passed in 19 19- and they are really instrumental in getting all of that competency bills, individual bills, um, they, to keep those from passing. And they really made an effort to think, bring together Native groups from all around the country, uh, putting out surveys and trying to figure out like what's the thing that people are most concerned about, and then being that sort of lobbying uh, voice arm in, in Washington D.C. Um, and it, yeah. Uh, Termination was a real big mobilizing factor for that.
4: So something that we must address is the gendered component of notions of wardship, citizenship, and welfare dependency. Can you talk a little bit more about um, how this is manifested uh, with your research? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> so, um, wardship is a really interesting term because when you first see it, I mean, for me now, the first thing I think of is Indian wardship. But when I first thought, like when I was seeing it in the archives, it was like coverture. That's what I thought of. Like a um, the status of like dependency, and uh, the guard, quote unquote, guardian is the husband over the fa- over the wife and the children, that kind of relationship. Um, so it's very gendered. The idea is that wards and the way that it's discussed in um um writing about it and people writing for like newspapers and stuff is that wards are basically incapable of becoming um citizens in that they're not able to provide for their families but very much a gender definition of citizenship like the head of a household can't be a ward like that doesn't make any sense for people's minds but that that, that idea is that they're being held back from being able to be like the provider for their family to own their property outright. And this is something that needs to be fixed. So it's very much a, a gender definition. And it even is like extremely explicit in some of the language from the hearings or the um, meetings, the congressional meetings that I've looked at the minutes. The idea is that, well, if a native man becomes like officially competent and was released from wardship, he then becomes the guardian for his wife and children. Like, then he replaces the state in this relationship so that the idea that that corresponds with the welfare dependency idea is that the state is sort of patriarch i guess the one that provides all of the resources and then we have to sort of replace that with uh with a native man and this is all over the conversations about welfare dependency i mean we still see this now This sort idea that um if you have a head of household, that's a woman who doesn't have a man to provide for her then she can qualify for welfare benefits if she has a man in the house then she automatically is disqualified from benefits. So it's very much set up to be like a, a the breadwinner um, and homemaker model is what the welfare system in the United States is kind of based on so that's, that comes into play with the way people are interpreting wardship as well. And then citizenship too. Like, whole idea is that um, who is the full citizen and who's sort of covered by their husband's uh, citizenship. Um, so there's gender, gender, all the way down, gender, all along the line.
3: Agreed. I mean, I, I'm having this moment where I'd, I'd like to talk about the way in which um, the gendered language also.
0: Mother's day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue Nile.
1: off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to
2: help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com
3: doesn't account for the way in which the i'm telling you my nerd neurons are, are just clicking right now um <laughs> the issue about citizenship wardship, dependency and you're talking about um uh, native people indigenous people but the way in which the government completely in some ways uses the particular language of the male head of household um to uh-huh. support certain families but we know is is decimating uh, families of color be it, uh, be it be it Indian be it uh, african-american Latino mm-hmm. I mean this language of and this presumption of a male head of household absent some of the violence we see um, uh, perpetrated against um, men of particular ethnic groups um, is really something we need to think more in-depthly about so oh yeah so thank you um okay i'm i'm not going to be heavy anymore for a second because we're getting ready to do our banco party but um (laughs) let's merge your career trajectory with bravo have you always been interested in tv and how did your reality tv interest develop
1: yeah um of course i've always been interested in tv like love tv like why not who
3: wouldn't be (laughs) (laughs) Like hello (laughs)
1: Um, and I, okay. So my mom might not like this. If she ends up listening to this, She might not like this, but sh- so she um, used to get super annoyed with us. I have uh, three siblings and we would, we're like TV uh, addicts, you know, come home from school and turn on the TV. And so she did this thing, which was like blasphemous in my, um, amongst my friends in middle school and high school, where she said like, no, you have no TV in the week uh, during the week. So, um, on the weekends, what I would do is I would take all the shows I wanted to watch on like a VHS tape. Yes. And then on when Friday hit I would just watch like six hours of T V that I had taped from the week. And so that was kind of like my uh oh, I just that's just like such a great feeling to sit there and put in the VHS tape and be like, I have so much ahead of me right now. <laughs> like all this it's so great. Um, which I think that she would think is funny now, but she actually did put a sign on the TV one summer. She said, oh, it's an, it's out of order. Like it just doesn't work. Like, you can't watch it. Um, and I, I can't bring myself to do the same for my children, even though I probably should because they watch a lot of TV, but um, I, I just love it. Um, but reality TV, um, I think the first reality shows I got into were like Laguna beach and the Hills on MTV. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to watch uh, road rules and real world sometimes like when my older cousins were visiting and they would watch those shows and i would sometimes watch it but it kind of seemed seemed a little bit clandestine because i was a little younger um when those shows first came on than i think the intended audience was (laughs) but Mm -hmm. then watching laguna Mm -hmm. beach and the hills i was like the same age as these these women and i was very had a very different sort of life than them so i found it really fascinating to get into that but um the uh competition style shows were really a favorite too. Like my favorite one for so long was America's next top model. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like, Oh my gosh, that show, it was so in, like I was so intrigued by the whole thing. Tyra Banks. I actually went to see a taping of Tyra Banks' talk show when I lived in New York, like watched her, the live recording of it <laughs> my friends and I were all obsessed with, um, and TM and wanted to go. Um, but uh, I ended up stop watching that once. Once they had this episode where she had a model who was the only, the first Native American model on the show. I think she was from a tribe in Washington. I can't remember now. But um, she had her dress up as Pocahontas oh in this like photo shoot where they had to dress as like historical figures or pop culture celebrity figures and do like a like a side by side with one figure who was one person and the other figure was like an opposite and it was Pocahontas paired with like John Lennon it was so weird I was like I can't watch this anymore <laughs> I just have to stop <laughs> so that's when I stopped watching it. but um my friends and I and when I was at my master's program at Sarah Lawrence we used to get together every week to watch America's Next Top Model and like eat takeout together and we would sort of talk about school and class and then watch the reality shows at the same time and it was just so fun like that was just one of my favorite memories from that program and so we started watching bravo shows there too i we started watching project runway and um top chef and then another like hair cutting
2: was it tabitha's chef. salon takeover Oh
3: my, God, my favorite
2: no it was
1: like individual hairdressers that had to compete uh-huh. in their it I was before Tab- it was before tabitha. tabitha might have been a judge on it though like I think that Tabitha was part of that show. I can't remember the name of it now. Um, it was very short lived. I don't think it was longer than a season.
2: Can you um, see that Jessica it, and I just got like so excited, like Tabitha, and then
4: <laughs> deflated.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I her salon takeover. A
1: few of them. Like, yeah, she's she's definitely got a vibe. <laughs> very specific vibe <laughs> but yeah so that was kind of like my original and I th- think I started watching Real Housewives with first but it was actually probably two or three years after the show had started I didn't really start watching religiously until camera was on I think I, I missed the first two seasons at least um, but then it was like the rest is history wanted to watch all the uh, the housewives that was my new favorite thing <laughs>
4: Um, just a quick question, because we've now had a number of guests who have said the real world was their gateway. And so I'm curious, uh, which city was your gateway?
1: Oh, um, okay. So I remember, so I used to, I didn't watch it, like, it wasn't one of the shows I taped. <laughs> like, I watched it only sort of here and there, but I vividly remember, I think, Seattle mm-hmm. as being one of what I... Was in
5: sort of more invested in. Um, that yeah, was with Puck,
4: was, right?
3: I thought Puck I was San so, Francisco. Oh, maybe. Wasn't he in the same house as Pedro, or am I completely wrong? I don't know. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's it was, been
4: years since. Right. That, um, decades at this yeah. point.
3: <laughs> really?
4: Yeah.
1: Now I'm, I'm Googling it. When we used but to right watch
3: here. TV on actual TVs. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Wait, week uh, to week. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, Irene. Remember, Irene? She was on Seattle. I remember her as mm-hmm. a, but I no. And um, Puck is not on this one. Um, hmm. uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, that was one of the first ones that I really watched. Um, yeah.
3: When did you get <laughs> but, into yeah. it, Max?
4: Hawaii. M- me too. With uh, tech. I was I, really into tech. I thought it I was,
3: was into tech, and I was into Ruthie. Like, what, did, yeah, what is yeah, Ruthie. This? I mean, I got into it by watching Hawaii, but then I had to go. Back because I have some claim to fame with the Los Angeles cast, so then I had to go back and rewatch mm-hmm. everything. What about you,
2: Casey? I um, lived with my grandparents when the railroad was on, and I was not allowed to watch MTV or VH1. We watched a lot of The Golden Girls and Designing Women and Matlock. Uh, <laughs> diagnosis murder with Dick Van Dyke, like, you know, so, but I would sneak into the very back of the house and turn the television on, on like volume level three and try to watch the real world and MTV and VH1. Um, but it was like impossible to hear. Uh, so I was never quite sure exactly what was going on, but I was thrilled with everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so who's your favorite Bravo Liberty?
1: Okay so this one I had to think because I the Bravo Lebrities I there's so many of them that I can't stand but I love to watch but um, I think that my favorite is Karen Huger and um, I chose her not because I particularly like her as a person because I don't <laughs> but I really love like her whole persona on the show is just so much like, it's like a textbook of like the housewife. Like you come on and you're just this, like she's the grand dame. She's very um, wealthy and then instructing people on how to act and how to be. And she's like, this is my relationship with Potomac. I'm so famous. And my like, husband is the Black Bill Gates and all of this stuff. And then you slowly start to see her becoming more and more human. Um, and then especially when she starts her own businesses, you get to see this really interesting relationship between her and her husband develop. And then this most recent season of Potomac, she is so, like, I just appreciated mm-hmm. how open she was about what she wanted, although she kind of backtracked a little bit. She, when she's drunk, she's like, I want Ray to pay me back all this money. And then in their counseling session, she says, oh, all I want is an apology, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But just her trajectory is just, it's very interesting. Um, so I think that she might be my favorite. Bravo, Liberty. Also Captain Lee, but I think Karen, probably for more interesting reasons.
4: She really is like the embodiment of extra. <laughs>
1: yeah. I that scene Talking Head where she's wearing like this feathery top and then has like a uh, dustpan and little mini broom where she like keeps on like dusting off the excess feathers. It's just really like, wow. It's just so like, and she has all these like, I mean, her relationship with Giselle is hilarious and also so negative and mm-hmm. yeah. Hilarious and
4: funny and interesting. Yeah. And now, as you're bringing it up, I would really like somebody, and it could be us here now, uh, to do a comparison of Karen Huger and uh, Luann Deliceps oh. like, oh, like, yeah, um, completely class with the count, like, like that sort of like decorum. Their evolution
2: they're both- of the yeah. the hoity toity to. Uh, yeah. I'm going to talk about Ramona shitting in the bathroom right now.
5: <laughs> i'm gonna just
4: announce it in front of somebody i don't mind if you call me by my first name like the, the money like-
3: cannot buy you class <laughs> karen huger with an h did come from a family of farmers but they weren't nearly as poor sometimes as she would like you to think um she mm-hmm. came from um a pretty um a solid family with you know a solid family of peanut farmers. But um, uh-huh. I think it goes, I think it's also a southern issue, like a southern kind of decorum and mannerisms. Oh, you didn't uh-huh. know I could go off on this one. Um, like Luann, but money cannot buy you what? Class. That's all I have to
2: say.
3: <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Casey and Max?
2: I think it's time for a Bunko Party game break.
3: Okay, I totally admit to looking ahead at what this game was going to be, and I'm, like, really excited. I've been
2: practicing things <laughs> in the background. Oh, yay! <laughs> I I wanted to do, a like, a fun everybody wins game today. So, we are playing something I'm calling Producers. Um, And the panel of Mary, Jessica, and Max will be our producers, and they will collectively come up with taglines for some housewives I'm going to throw out. And these are all former housewives, no longer filming. Some of them I feel like we might be teased with a potential return someday. So um, we're just going to put this out into the universe. So the first housewife up... Is Phaedra Parks. I'm so glad oh. you
3: went there. I already have one.
2: Oh my goodness. I felt like as I was oh my I, God. I felt like this energy, like I'm about to say this, and I'm sure oh that God. Jessica's already thought about this for months already. Um so Phaedra Parks.
3: Now let me be clear that some of these taglines, because I have a few over here, I'm really not sure if I made them up or maybe I watched the show at night and it just <laughs> came. not and, and like they may have said it. So I'm not clear if I'm misappropriating. So Phaedra Parks. <sighs> I would rather have a donkey booty than being a horse's ass. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, Jessica. That was great. I think it's I would rather have a donkey booty versus being a horse's ass. (laughs) Kenya.
1: Oh, my gosh. I forgot about the donkey booty thing, too. That's so funny. I love that. Good.
2: Panel is in agreement. So we will go to the next housewife. Heather Dubrow.
3: Oh, I should have anticipated this one. Oh,
4: my gosh.
2: When was the last season she was on? It was like...
4: Season seven or eight. The
2: trip to Ireland. Kelly's a- first season was Heather's last season. She was like, I'm not filming anymore with her. Yeah. yeah. But the anti-Semitism that she had the argument with, with Kelly about in the mm. pub in Ireland and then the bus fight and... All the other antics that season. Who's the Heather was Heather was done.
4: Who's the anti-Semitism? wasn't Wasn't it
2: that she said that Kelly was being anti-Semitic? Yeah, Kelly did say something. They were um, in the bar. I like- thought I thought it was an anti-Semitism fight that they had, but it might have been. You might be something, right. Something. I mean, so I- Heather was on the show since she's had her own video blog with videos of oh. her mansion that's uh, been completed. So you see it decorated seasonally. She takes you on Twenty-one million
3: dollar mansion as per page yeah. six we learned just the other day.
4: She oh so so I have now researched so we have the answer. What Kelly said was that uh Heather should have more of a Jewish sense of humor.
2: That's right. Oh, oh I was so I was yeah. right. And yeah, Heather yeah, did yeah. was like that was anti Semitic Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: But
1: I,
2: I
3: actually,
2: don't even know what I, that, that means. No, I
4: do you really think that's why she left? Uh no, I don't, no, think. I don't no. think that. I think I it just got itself. too messy. I,
2: I think that like the season itself with I think Heather was like I'm not doing this like weird Brooks stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh oh. and I and I think it was also paired with Kelly was um definitely not the way heather wanted to portray herself
3: no i think that if we look at heather dubrow i want a bit bite off the great uh contemporary philosopher common (laughs) common rapper actor and uh philanthropist um common has this line in his in one of his songs where he says um i'm a i have a sag card i'm an actor not just a rapper or I'm not just a rapper I have a sag card I'm an actor something like that but to me Mm -hmm. this is also Heather DeBro. like I'm not a housewife something like yeah why do I need to be a housewife when I have a sag card or something something about her being a true actress is Mm -hmm. what I'm working through right so what can we do with that is we need to do something around the sag card or the 20 million dollar home
2: oh and extra tidbit in 2020 june 2020 um tamra judge said that of course part of um heather's exit was she wanted kelly dodd fired for racist comments she had made um i think kelly had a history of it before being on the show obviously and um so tamra judge said that bravo forced out Heather Dubrow because Heather and one of the executives were having a conflict. So like essentially they were like, No, Kelly's great for TV and Heather was like, I'm done with this.
3: Now I'm having a Dr. Huh? Phil moment. And how did that work for you, OC?
2: Yeah. She
5: like <laughs>
3: how was that working for you to keep Kelly? Heather took
2: the show with her.
4: <laughs> Seriously, I don't, know. I don't yeah. know if Heather took the show with her, but definitely Kelly sunk the ship.
1: <laughs> oh god. Kelly is yeah. Talk
4: about my least favorite Bravo celebrity. I think
5: it's got to be her yeah. or Jack. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, Jacks
4: might uh, edge it out, mm-hmm. but yeah. <laughs> Kelly Kelly is a close second. <laughs> of course, I can act like I like being here. I have a SAG card.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something to that effect. Yes, yes. But do bum.
2: Okay, right. how we? How about we try? Caroline Manzo. <laughs> you know I wanted her to come back for so long.
4: What? What is the ah. drama right now with Caroline and her, is it her sister-in-law and the domestic abuse? I'm so glad you asked. Yeah.
3: Her sister Dina, right? Mhm. Her sister Dina is reportedly been abused by her husband and Caroline took the husband's um uh side and isn't the am i wrong here isn't the husband married to caroline's husband aren't the yeah. sister sisters married to brother brothers something like that yeah. right yeah. both the sisters moved, married into the manzo family or am i completely i think
1: confused. so well I, what was that the i don't know if that's that dina's current husband i know that they have
2: it's the ex so she's been i think she got remarried
3: yeah. Yes, according to page six, which is where I'm getting all my news these days off of Instagram and page six. I will have <laughs> that, I will research that and get back to you, Max, but I think that's what the, the scuttlebutt is. Wow. So, so then her
1: tagline has to be something about family, like blood is not necessarily thicker than water or something like the, the family connection isn't as strong as
5: she wants it to be. I
3: will something. protect my family to the end, unless you're my sister.
5: <laughs> That's a good
2: one. Uh, people are gonna be like Kyle. No. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh,
3: okay, so we have Phaedra, we have Heather, we kind of have Caroline. What else do you got, Casey? I'm like, I'm really flossy. Adrian Maloof, also someone oh. I like. We can do something around the Bickersons. We can do. I was just thinking about her the other night when they had the Watch, watch happens live with all the great people who used to be on.
2: Did you and Max meet Adrienne Malouf when you I, went to BravoCon?
3: We didn't I didn't meet her there, but I actually have met her. Hmm. Back in the day, my first job as an AmeriCorps member for I Have a Dream oh. Foundation in Los Angeles. Her family is it the, it's the Kings, Sacramento Kings? Yes, yep. basketball team. Right, thank, thank you. Because I'm like, hockey, what is it? Well, her family, um, her parents actually adopted one of the classrooms um, that I worked with. So I actually had been to her parents' house and met Adrian. Didn't at that time realize who it was, but I'm going down on the record as saying we hit it off famously. She was nice? <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. I, have, I don't even remember, but sure. They were really nice people. <laughs> yeah. Um, Adrian Malouf. Bickerson's Lisa Vanderpump being a neighbor plastic surgery. What was the shoe fight? Wasn't there a fight over her shoe line?
4: I may own Sacramento, but I never leave Beverly Hills.
2: Oh, oh.
4: <laughs>
2: that's amazing. Cause they actually, they did build like this enormous new basketball stadium. It like swallowed Sacramento downtown. It, like this whole gentrification thing Um, so I really I actually dig that line a lot. What the
3: audience is missing is after Max delivers these one liners he kind of shrugs like dusts his shoulder off like
2: (laughs) as if he just shot his own three pointer right I mean he really is
3: like (laughs) okay give us another one we have one more case.
2: The very last one I'm super excited about this one Alex McCord she is desperately needed back on Roni
4: Alex McCord it is a treasure. <laughs>
2: <laughs> her flustered faces are the best, I think, of any housewife. Her
3: stomping off with the, and you can hear her f- shoes.
2: She's like oh, yeah. Frankenstein shoes.
1: <laughs> no, but they're Louis, Vu- Louis Vuitton. And then even Lou Antz, well, even he made mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> <after that. laughs> oh. I'm. Uh, and she
5: wrote. A, they didn't. They write a book about
4: parenting. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Simon. Um. I mean. I just. The the thing that always comes to my mind is her fight with Jill Zarin. Uh, where mm-hmm. she said, uh, the now famous quote you are a mean girl and you are in high school and while you are in high school i am in brooklyn fighting for my <laughs> wife <laughs> <laughs> and so the one liner that i thought of is how do you incorporate that into like the housewives patois right because it has mm-hmm. to have the like na 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 right so i was thinking um I don't fight with high school mean girls. I'm in Brooklyn. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Brooklyn has become a city of gentrifiers, and I'm down.
4: Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're actually not in Brooklyn anymore. They they live in Australia. Yeah. I got oh, really? for that. One. Yeah. They moved to Australia. They peaced out once uh, the Housewives thing fell out, and Simon's, I guess it's a music album, failed. <laughs> Wait, what? Oh, yeah, Simon yeah. Ha- Simon, <laughs> Simon has... You
2: should look up the cover. It's everything. Simon has these bright red leather pants on. Oh, come on. we got to oh. do a
3: tagline on um, Simon.
4: I, can, I think I can get away with playing like 30 seconds of, of his single I Am Real. I know it's called I Am Real.
1: I would love that. I, I am on... Wikipedia page for I Am Real, and I see the album cover, and it's
5: amazing. <laughs> he sounds like he's in a closet. <laughs> Wow. oh man yeah.
2: that was really special i I liked the beat
4: yeah hey, that that was terrible <laughs> <laughs> No, wow
5: was really I, I was
3: i was underwhelmed um i was really even <laughs> underwhelmed by the leather pants i just don't even really know what to do with all of this um,
1: is it possible to be underwhelmed by, did you have high expectations for that yeah i have high
3: expectations <laughs> for the housewives and i'm underwhelmed that's a pretty low bar
4: he looks really uncomfortable on this album cover too to be in the leather pants
3: yeah, they
1: and
4: the look arms really are tight. And I mean, I guess like... if you
3: can't rock it like Michael Jackson in Thriller, like, why would you even try? He set himself up. Oh, we all yeah. remember the red leather pants. <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, so maybe Alex McCord is just our enigma.
3: <sighs> maybe. So did we come up with five?
2: We definitely talked about five. Yeah. Yeah. So
3: okay. did we win the game, Casey?
2: Everybody was a big winner today. Oh, my God.
3: Thank you. Thank you to the people. Thank you to my (laughs) co-hosts. Okay, so we are back to the interview. And in this part of the interview, we're going to focus on um, anti-Indigenous sentiment on the Real Housewives and the important things to take away from these examples. Um, Let me just go by the first example will be... uh, (laughs) Countess Luanne or Luanne, how she now is sometimes is commonly referred to and Carol (laughs) Wills exchange in uh, on Roni in season five, episode 10
1: you met my mother, Ramona? Yes, your mother's lovely. Is it going to be 83. But she's very young. 83. Yeah, she's she's, wonderful. She still speaks in English like that, you know, there with the accent French. You know, Jeff, you ever heard her speak English? It's just so cute.
0: Is your mom the Indian side or your dad? They both were there. That's where she grew up. My favorite moment was when I told Ramona that Luann was an aborigine. It just sounds so good, you know? It's like, what's an aborigine? We had to go Google it. Since Columbus came, it's American Indian. Indian. No, Aborigines okay. are in Australia. Yes, but there are Aborigines in Canada
1: as well. I think they're called in Canada First it's a Nations. a kind way
4: to say, uh, uh, so savage. I didn't call it that. that. So if somebody asks about, about your know. background, where are you from?
1: My father was American Indian because he's okay. gone now. They, they do don't say India. Huh? In American Indian. Oh.
0: This is not a way that we refer to the native population.
3: Anyone over third grade knows not to say Indian. <laughs>
5: With, uh-huh.
0: I was embarrassed that she was looking like an idiot. Careful for your scalp, baby. <laughs> uh-huh.
5: with,
4: what are
0: you doing? What? No, but her family didn't scalp. They only burned down your houses in Brady.
4: <laughs> I'm with you. What? I would say Indian is. Native a lot American. Of I don't know.
1: Everyone over third grade. Well Jacques always that. calls me his wild Indian, so
4: you know. I'm not ready for this.
0: I thought they were making fun of people who have a history of being neglected, discriminated against, abused. And that is not something you joke about.
2: I I, I think they only call them Aboriginal people in
3: Canada. Canada
1: is full of, Ameri- of American Indians, I call them, Native Americans.
3: She says you can't Bull. say Indians. Right. Bull. I think the point was that Native American versus Indian, and
1: no one says so Indian anymore because, Indian because it's politically African correct. Well, nobody uses darling anymore, but I still use it because I guess I can Why because can't I am an Indian.
0: Everybody's going American Indian,
1: Native American, and I'm going, isn't there a, you know, a museum in Washington called the American
5: Indian Museum?
3: Can you unpack and analyze this exchange for us, Mary? Yeah. Um, so this is the one I think that this is like the most
1: famous anti-indigenous or anti-native exchange on the show. I feel like with this whole debate over whether or not you should wo- use the word Indian, um, that's kind of where it starts. Okay. So that's like the two main players, Luann and Carol, Then you also have like the peanut gallery of Sonia and Ramona, who keep on yelling out other terminology during this. Like, what about Aborigines and what about this? And Carol's like, I think they call them First Nations. You know, all this stuff from that she's uh, trying to correct people. So it's it's really interesting because Luan, as we know, um, is native. Her father is native, and I actually tried to do some research to figure out some more specifics than that. Um, Wikipedia it says her father is of Algonquin and French descent. Um, but I'm actually not sure which tribe specifically she's talking about. But um, as, so she has this as like part of her identity that she's mentioned from the very beginning like, of her very first season on the show. There was one, I think it was when she was doing that thing with the, um, with the like boys and girls club or something where she had that horrible line about how the little, the young girl wanted to be a model. It's like, well, you have some, some time to lose the weight or something like that oh my god
3: (laughs) (laughs) i remember that moment
1: this um like oh well i went from being a native american from connecticut to a countess like this sort of rags to riches story which made it sound like she you know grew up impoverished and came to this like place and i i don't know i mean i watched some special about her life a couple years ago where they actually talked about her parents and her time in Italy and everything and I, I, I don't know how much of her native ancestry factored into that backstory but anyway it's part of her it's no. part of her, of self. <laughs> her like um her presentation to the world, right? She wears a lot of statement necklaces and a lot of them are like turquoise and very I don't know if they're made by native artists, but they're native inspired I could say.
3: <laughs> I would have never put the jewelry together with this 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 heritage that okay. I wasn't even aware that she had. I never but now I'm gonna look at it completely differently. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Every- I see
1: her with a turquoise necklace. I think about that. I don't know if she's doing that on purpose. I mean, I, I actually like her necklaces. And <laughs> oh, she's got I, I great like, pieces. Um, but the, yeah, I think that she, she has this exchange with Carol, but basically says I can say Indian because I am. Indian." Um, and then Carol's like, well, anybody past the, like fourth grade knows you have to say native American. So there's like pieces of this stage we should stop there and unpack because Carol is like 100% wrong in this, this piece of the scenario. Mm-hmm. Like can't like go head to head about Indian versus native. Like it's just much more complicated than the way that she's making it seem. And then Luanne has this talking head. She's like, there's a museum in Washington called the museum of the American Indian. Like that Indian is still a, a term that's used in law. It's used among native people. Like it's, it's just much more complicated than that, than that, like, never say that. It's essentially a slur, which is what Carol was, was kind of saying. But then Luann takes it to a whole other level and starts doing, like, the fake war whooping and saying how Jock calls her his wild Indian. And then um, Carol's like, Luanne, like, what are you doing? Like, she's really kind of embarrassed. And, um, and then she has this whole thing, of, like, "Well, how we shouldn't be making fun of a people that's been subject to genocide and colonialism. And I have, I have thoughts about Carol's perspective, which are kind of separate from Luann's, but Luann, I mean, she really took it to, I mean, it's just horrible, like, the place that she took it, and Jacques does not help anything, because he starts talking about the French word for Native people, which is sauvage, which means savage, like, (laughs) and then Ramona and Sonia are like, I don't think you can say that, like, on the side like completely drunk trying to participate in this which and are just blundering everything. So, <laughs> um, it is, it is really, I think the heart of this is like, there is no consensus on what's the quote unquote right thing to say, because nobody's really coming at this conversation from like, we should really be deferring to native people <laughs> in terms of what they want to be called. And even though Luanne says, well, I am native, so I can call myself an Indian. Um, there's no real, like, there's no specificity in this whole exchange at all, and it's really they're speaking in generalizations, and then also racist generalizations, which make it even worse. So it becomes just sort of a mess of a conversation, which I I can't get out of my head. <laughs> I think it's like so so cringeworthy.
4: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow what um because yeah. you kind of teased it what what is your perspective on carol's um, um take yeah. in this exchange
1: okay so bear with me here because i have this sense like we have so nobody in the u.s well not nobody but not very many people in the u.s understand like the dynamics between sovereignty and the state and how native people like um have what's their relationship with the state are they like one of many minority groups in the united states that we have to sort of include in a list of like long name a list of minorities is this um or is they don't nobody really gets that this is like a these are members of sovereign nations like they're not really talking about it in that sense at all carol's real generalization comes when she's like well these people have all been subject to colonialism and genocide. I don't even know if she uses the word colonialism. Um, She uses the word genocide or maybe it's like hardships or something like that. It's all very sort of vague. So I, I don't disagree with her point about how we shouldn't be making fun of native people. Like obviously I agree with that, (laughs) but then there's no real engagement with what it means to be having this conversation among this group of people who really don't have any investment in Native people or Native people's issues um, besides the sort of surface level thing that Luann sort of throws around about her own heritage, which not it's not like she's bringing it back to political sovereignty or even cultural sovereignty or anything like that. It's all just a very kind of generalized discussion. And then Carol's like on the side of like, well, you can't say that. Here's what you say. And that's it. Like, we'll just tie it up. We just say Native American now. That's fine. And that's how we show respect. and which i I think it's just there's so much more to say um although i do i don't fault her for the way that the whole interchange is so cringy i just she's like clearly like uh what's happening like what do i do (laughs) and then luann and jock are kind of off in their own um exchange which is can't really be reeled in so i don't know i'm i feel like there's just needs to be more specificity overall
4: yeah i mean what strikes me in like rethinking about this exchange is like what I think Carol is actually responding to is the way that Luann is racializing indigenous people like, and, and like, like turning indigenous people into a quote unquote race as opposed to like members of a tribe. Yeah, Um, exactly. And the irony within that is that she's actually like reinforcing race by being like, no native American they were all subject to genocide or, or whatever, Mm -hmm. or hardships or whatever. Like, and it's in her like liberal sort of Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) like complimentary of indigenous people that she's, or, or trying to be complimentary. I I don't quite know what that word is, but like,
1: yeah, Yeah. it's like attempt to acknowledge, but it doesn't actually, it's still like generalized platitudes. It's like when people make the comment around Thanksgiving, about how we're celebrating genocide or whatever, but they don't ever really investigate like anything past that. Like the day passes and then we're done with the conversation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. It's that kind of like a, and that liberal sort of, no, everybody knows past this age that you should say this term. That's like, well, not really like you, you're making a sort of blanket statement on the other side, which is not, which is also not giving um, respect or honor or credence or like, complexity or nuance to the group that you're discussing
4: yeah there's kind of like paternalism to it yeah i guess yeah Uh, yeah
2: so another example that we can look to to analyze these moments of anti-indigenous sentiment on bravo involves monique samuels showing up as a American Indian at Karen's Cultural Appropriation Party on The Real Housewives of Potomac Season 2, Episode 12.
3: Uh-oh. Ladies. Okay. 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 It's an Indian theme. As in saris. Not the village people.
5: You don't like it? I like
3: it. Oh, yeah.
5: it's
3: not Native America. Not tribe called Cuckoo. Exotic Native Americans, you know? Yeah. Hey, he I had to
1: like. Off off for late night tonight. Oh
5: Look yeah, I got right. you. I got you. <laughs>
3: Sometimes that bulb up there is not too bright. I think she thought it was gonna be funny, but no one's laughing. I'm hoping she'll see the humor in it because I was yeah. so confused the whole time. I think Monique was trying to make light
2: of everything. Eventually she'll fit in quite fine around here. But yeah, it's a little different. Tell us what is happening here. Oh, what is happening? That is the question. <laughs> like, the whole party <laughs> is confusing.
1: But I called it the cultural appropriation party, but that's not like obviously not what Karen calls it. But it is the whole thing is so bizarre. Like, we're going to have an exotic party. You can dress in a sari or like you can dress like you're from Africa, like vaguely defined. <laughs> the whole thing is so weird. Um, just the, the premise for the party. And then it's in that weird, like, rental house of hers. So there's, like, added tension. And then Monique walks in with this very um, sexualized, like, buckskin outfit where it's, like, kind of a bikini and this huge Plains Indian. I mean, putting this in, like, very quotes here because it's, like, a co- clearly a costume, Plains Indian war bonnet, which is, <laughs> and it's just, she has even paint on her face. Like, she's leaning into this, well, you you said Indian, and I didn't know what you meant, so I decided to do this instead. Is Aren't I cute and hilarious? And everybody is sort of like, what? <laughs> While they're all wearing saris, dressed up as people from India. So it's like there's multiple levels of cultural appropriation going on at once. But then there's a clear sort of like awkward... Moment when Monique walks in and everyone's like, oh, "Okay, I, I see what you did there." Like, "Ha ha!" Um, and then a lot of people sort of talking crap about her in the talking heads. But um, yeah, that whole party is needs to be sort of analyzed. But then Monique's choice is also uh, just icing on the cake for what what is happening at that party.
3: <laughs> yeah, what was the original theme? Was there was the theme supposed to be exotic? What was it supposed to be? What was the theme like? What is the what was I the think duh? Was, How did we end the, up what here? That was her
4: motivation. Yeah, how did for... we end up here?
3: <laughs> I don't I don't know why
1: they all went to this store in Washington DC where it was like a, a sorry store. Like somebody the guy there was like selling saris, and then they were talking about I, I mean he t- like fitted them but then they why were they wearing why? Why? I was doing some uh, research for this interview and I I, I went to Monique Samuels Twitter. <laughs> From oh dear! after the third. and because I wanted to talk a little bit about once we get to Kenya's thing because the, the response between Monique's choice to do this and then Kenya's Halloween costume I think are very different maybe that just reflects like where we are at right now in 2021 and our discussions about this kind of thing but um, so Monique's response was if they can come dressed as Indians and they're not from India can I come dressed as the American Indian I can relate to personally and then um, the like hands up emoji um and then she said later it, it was pretty open-ended and i'm the only one who decided to own it so i don't know exactly what she's saying <laughs> other than that like she's calling out their own uh, appropriation like saying was well, you're dressed as indians you're not from india but um i am i guess she's claiming native ancestry um and saying she can relate to it personally so she's going to dress as this like clearly costume like over-sexualized costume of the Indian. We should be so far past this. Like, we've been having these conversations for probably two decades. Or, I mean, you could read Philip Deloria's book. Like, um, he's talked about people dressing as Native people from before the U.S. was even a country. This mm-hmm. <laughs> is like, we have a history of appropriating Native identity, but this sort of wearing it as a costume. I mean, Monique's choice was purely for like to stick it to Karen mm-hmm. to make her ruffled feathers. And then also maybe for comedic effect or something. She wanted to make people laugh. But it's like I I don't buy her choice. It's like oh I I relate to this personally, so this she is why she I- should
3: have said Karen's whole premise was fucked up, and I'm going to show you how fucked up it was. I would have appreciated you know? that. Then mm-hmm. oh, and then my heritage and my this. No, let me show you just how fucked up your vision is by bringing in the the American equivalent. This is just yeah. what I'm thinking today.
2: I mean, that would have been kind of like one of those mic drop moments mm-hmm. where you're like. Well,
1: what can you say? Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: I I think that that would be. I mean, I that would be like way. That would be something if Monique had actually thought it through in that, le- <laughs> <to> that level. <laughs> but she really, I yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I don't have anything. more I mean, she looked phenomenal,
3: but um, yeah, <laughs>
4: yeah. I'm going back to because we're about to play a clip now of Kenya. Um, Kenya Moore's Halloween costume in this most uh, recent episode, where, um, right here. This
5: is, mm-hmm. this is like this very is like native. native. Mm-hmm.
0: Kenya's Native American costume is super problematic, but I'm not trying to ruffle no feathers before this girl's trip.
3: Where did you find your headpiece? It's like Warrior Princess.
5: Yeah, that's <laughs> about right. <laughs> no, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It feels like I'm
3: always the only one that sees the issues with Kenya Moore's decisions. He is a Native American warrior. I thought we weren't doing that no more. Like, to me, it's really wrong. I knew that this girl was
1: crazy, but add lame to the list, add whack to the list. What they've done is they've edited out every sort of frame where you actually see her costume. They just show her like they just have her voice talking to people because like she has a big role in that party with talking to latoya and all the, the people but they don't ever show her costume and then they do have the talking heads where people are talking about her costume and then cynthia sort of awkwardly asks like oh so where'd you get that headpiece Like <laughs> awkwardly talking about it but then they never actually show it so it's kind of like they're
3: Taking the step to protect the viewer, or something, or trying—they to... realize
4: they screwed up. Well, they're protecting the yeah. advertising,
3: right? Because as much as this yeah. is about Kenya, this is also about producers behind the scenes saying, "You know what? Go put that. Go put that uh, outfit on." You know what? So there's this interplay between producing the show and producing the moment, and then saying, "Oops, did we go too far? Are we? Did we have backlash? How do we clean this up?" Yeah,
1: yeah. It's really, um, it's a really interesting dynamic because everybody is clearly uncomfortable with it. And there's nobody that's sort of like, Oh, haha, This is a, a good costume. <laughs> Everybody's like, well, I think it was candy or maybe it was Portia who were like, well, haven't we already established that we shouldn't do this? Like, yeah <laughs> well, I'm like, yeah, we've already been to this, right? Like, why are we rehashing this again? Um, but I agree with you about the interaction between her and Andy at the reunion and how she sort of in like, well, I wanted to, I, to bring in part of my heritage or something like that. And Andy's like, so what, what's your native American heritage? And then she's like, well, I have, um, aunts who were on reservations in West Virginia and there's no, it's just so vague. There's no engagement with that idea. It's just like, I, yeah, it's very frustrating that, and that Andy doesn't push it. It's just all, it reminded me of that same thing where, um, Kelly brings up her ancestry.com results or whatever she talks about and how she actually is a black person and, and I think she's a native person in that (laughs) um, uh, reunion episode. Um,
4: Okay. With the immediate backlash, Kenya claimed indigenous heritage. Can you walk us through the sort of build on what we've been talking about already and help everyone to process the problems here?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I did want to, so So this is actually really timely that we're talking about this right now, because I don't know if you all saw that article in the New York Times that came out this week about um, Andrea Smith. Are you kidding me?
3: Are are you kidding me? We thought it would be perfectly pitched (laughs) for your episode by, so (laughs) without any prompting from us, please talk about the article and bring it all together.
1: So I think these, these two things really do relate because, okay, so the article establishes this long um, that a debate and conflict over andrea smith who's a scholar at uc riverside right now she's a native studies scholar who's claimed cherokee ancestry or um even though it's been shown for i think over a decade that she has no the cherokee nation none of the bands of the cherokee nation claim her all, they there's no connections between her family and the cherokee nation but she and her sister have both claimed it and she's have made like quite a name for herself in the field of Native Studies and has there's a lot of people who have pushed back on her um, claiming this and she is the subject of this piece that kind of walks through that whole saga but it's there is a statement that was put out in 2020 by a group of Cherokee scholars um, that I wanted to just read a piece of because I think it relates to both Kenya and um, Andrea Smith. And it just this one sentence, or two sentences. It says Cherokee identity is a political identity that can only be established through documentation by one of the Cherokee governments that an individual is a Cherokee citizen. It is not, and has never been, an ethnic or racial identity that is established through self-identification. So that idea of like this is a political claim that people are making, even when they say, "Oh, my my great great grandmother was Native, so that's why I can wear a like rom- like a sexualized." you know, offensive costume and I was trying to sort of connect to my heritage, it really undermines the political status of an actual group of people. That's a a sovereign nation, right? That has a legal relationship with the United States and has an established system of claiming citizenship and establishing your ties to the tribe that isn't respected in both of these circumstances, right? So you have like this, you're, 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 you're claiming some sort of stake in their, um, in their status as a, as a protected sort of political status, if you're sort of associating yourself with a particular nation. And then even with Kenya, she doesn't claim status in a particular, um, tribe. She sort of just sort of gestures to a ancestral past that's not really unpacked or pushed upon. But, um, there's another piece of the statement that the Cherokee scholars have put out there, which is that um, I think it, it specifically relates to Cherokee people, but it also relates, I think, to other Native nations. It says any person who publicly identifies as Cherokee has initiated a public discussion about their identity, and that is appropriate to ask such persons to explain the verifiable basis upon which they are claiming a Cherokee identity. So that, Ooh, that I, I like that. that. It's okay to push back and to ask for specifics, especially on this particular topic, because this is not a race or like a one, you know, if your family lore is not enough, because we're talking about it becomes a question of sovereignty. So it, it makes it makes sense to be more specific, and that's the whole Andrew Smith thing that she never could be specific, um, and it was you know, specifically established that she didn't have any Cherokee um, ancestry at all. But uh yeah. <laughs> Wow. So I thought that that was actually a timely comparison to both of these sort of thing, academia and housewives are intersecting.
2: So I want to sort of wrap us up with um, another teaching moment. So I mm-hmm. had the pleasure of recently working with you on a publication that you put out in the um women and social movements journal, um, mm-hmm. volume 24, number two, so from September, 2020, uh, and your project was titled native women's challenges to termination and relocation policy, 1944 to 1971. So I was hoping that you would indulge us with a discussion about this project and how people can use it in their classroom.
1: Sure. Yeah. It, um, it builds off of a lot of the stuff I talked about um, earlier in that I tried to answer or pose a question for students to consider people looking at these sources of how termination was gendered as a gendered policy. Um, and that the idea of like releasing native families from wardships so that a secure native man, the head of household could be like the property owner, take of taking care of his wife and child and all that. Um, is that's in the, the project, those kinds of um, legislative choices that people made. But then there, most of it is um, uh, primary sources from Native women, so women who worked very closely with the um, National Congress of American Indians. I have documents from Bruce Bronson, who was Cherokee, and then Helen Peterson, um, who was Lakota and Cheyenne. And these were two very prominent women in the organization who did a lot of the legwork for all of these um, Anti-termination and uh, anti-termination work, and then I look at um, the ways that Native women pushed back against the government's plan to terminate their tribes and sort of pushed against their um, perceptions of what what the relationship between the tribes and the state actually was. So I look at, or the document project has excerpts from congressional hearings where Native women testified on behalf of their communities, basically asking the government to fulfill some of the promises it had made in the context of treaty making uh, before they removed trust protections and things like that. So there's a, there's a lot of gendered interchange between like white male politicians questioning native women who are bringing their concerns to the table. Um, And there's uh, some interesting sort of interactions there, but overall the, If you want to use it in the classroom, which I think you should, (laughs) I think the best thing about it is that it really brings Native women into this conversation about policy, um, and it doesn't, I mean, I argue in a lot of my work that policy is not something that is just a one-sided issue. It's not like the U.S. imposes policy and then Native people obey the policy. There's always pushback. There's always resistance and adaptation and negotiation. And Native women are oftentimes a really big part of that because a lot of this has to do with daily things that have to do with um, community well-being, like fixing up roads and um, installing sewer mains and uh, making sure that children have access to public education, like all of these things that women are doing to keep their community healthy and together, that comes to the forefront when we're talking about termination, when the government's proposing, you know, federal government stepping out of the role of like holding jurisdiction over reservations.
2: So wow. it's a way to get
1: more Native people into your classroom and more Native women. <laughs> yeah. And the
2: and the great thing also is that you have such a fantastic sort of guiding um, introduction essay to help students find their way through these sources and help interpret them. But it would also allow students to do their own research and and build out their own sort of papers about um, mm-hmm. termination policy, um, which could be a really great project too. Yeah, I agree. I mean, termination policy is one of those things that's kind of, if you're teaching
1: like a U.S. history course, you might touch on it, but more than likely you probably won't. Like there's there's policies in Indian policy that are more sort of prominent. Like we talk about assimilation and then sometimes we skip all the way to like um, the American Indian movement. So there's like a whole bunch of stuff that happens in the middle of the 20th century that's really important. So it's a it's a way to get into that those policy discussions.
2: Yeah, and it's a way that can be really interactive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, having different groups of students work with different primary sources from the set to then come together and have a conversation about you know what they saw, what they you know think. So it could it could really make for a great lesson plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, we consistently run out of time to do Allegedly, which is bittersweet because we love it, but we also have such great conversations that, you know, it's all great. So, instead, we're going to have a brief little, what we call a coffee clutch moment, and if you would indulge us, uh, what rec- what readings would you recommend um, as a uh-huh. compendium to your episode? What, what should people pick up and look at if they want to learn more mm-hmm.
1: well i actually um was thinking about this this morning so i i you know i don't know if you can put links in your episode notes or something but there, that statement from the cherokee scholars on sovereignty and identity i think is really kind of essential reading to really get at a, a very clear statement when it comes to this this issue of appropriating um whether it's appropriating sort of a general idea of nativeness for a costume all the way to appropriating a specific identity for the purposes of your research or your scholarship or advancing your career, Um, all kinds of ethnic fraud. So I I recommend reading that, um, that statement. And then um, alongside that New York Times article, which provides a lot of the good background about, about that. But then um, in terms of like historiographically, Phil Deloria's book "Playing Indian" is like now a classic from 1999. Um, it it is excellent, and I, if anybody hasn't read it, <laughs> you should read it because it's really good. It's also a good way to bring students into the discussion of cultural appropriation and understanding that it's a much long, much long, much well, longer standing mm-hmm. issue than we have. It's not just about Coachella and people wearing headdresses. It's about it's much more um, complicated, and it's really integrated into American history in ways that are very. Um, Uh, problematic and then I do want to recommend another podcast um it's called all my relations and it's a podcast that's the first season is uh, the hosts are Adrian Keene who is a Cherokee scholar at Brown and Matika Wilbur, who is um oh now I'm forgetting her tribal affiliation but she is a native photographer and they have this really interesting podcast where they um sort of do one sort of particular issue relating to indigenous history culture art um one episode or one sort of theme per episode they have a whole um, episode on native appropriations which is really well done and provides a lot of the background and talking points about it and then they have one that's also kind of related it's called native fashion and it's a really interesting take on something to listen to after the appropriations because it talks about native designers and the art that they produce and for people to consume and wear and how that's very different from putting on a costume that you got at like party city of a native person <laughs> of like what it means to purchase something that's created by a native person and represents something about their heritage that you're wearing and, and supporting um, financially with their, through your business. So I have, those are my sort of recommendations for where to go next.
2: Thank you so much, Mary. Um, before we let you go, could you tell us what's next for you and what you want people to know about your upcoming work? How can they get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Yeah.
1: So I, um, next year, I actually have a um, a fellowship, so I'm taking some away from my adjunct life, <laughs> and I'm going to actually write the book that I've been talking about <laughs> this episode, which is right now kind of in shambles. So I am I am writing it. It will be done next year and it's um, under contract with Nebraska so um, keep an eye out for it. And And what's the title um, again? The title is Wardship and the Welfare State uh, Native Americans and the Formation of First-Class Citizenship in Modern America.
2: That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, And uh, if you want to get in touch with me I'm on Twitter. Um, My handle is K L A N N and I'm also on Instagram but I'm kind of uh, taking i haven't been active on instagram in a while but i'm maybe trying to get back into it this summer but my handle there is prof uh, underscore one and yeah i also i'm really big into chatting about teaching and um ungrading and sort of progressive pedagogy stuff kind of what i do on twitter mostly but also let's talk about housewives and native american history
2: as always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Historians H. And don't forget that you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. You can also find us now at our Etsy shop, Historians Housewives. Thank you, Mary Klon. This show is brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Laura Looper, Kim Bettendorf, Luis Ocio de Dios, and the Agipon Foundation. And remember, scholars do bravo too.